Hey there, this is Xingyao and a warm welcome back to Maybank Kimeng's ASEAN Speaks podcast. As the US takes a break with the Labor Day holiday, market observers are closely monitoring the latest jobs report release last Friday. Non-farm payrolls missed consensus expectations for 725,000 new job additions by a long shot. And now, this has ignited stagflation fears. The tech sector did perform well, as these stocks typically show up as a means of defense when growth is in doubt. Over in ASEAN, institutional funds flow have by and large been underweight the region year-to-date. But it's important to note here that consensus analyst sentiment has improved significantly over the past six months. On today's program, we will be speaking with Suami Elias, who is our chief economist for Malaysia. If the pre-budget meeting, which is a first for Malaysia, will serve to further boost investors' confidence. Over in the Philippines, and taking a slightly different lens to capital markets' performance, our Philippines Head of Research, Jackie, will share insights if the corporate sector's progressive embrace of ESG will make good business sense and also support valuation. So sit back and enjoy the conversations. Hagbin, our co-head for macro research, will moderate the show from here on. So let's go with Hagbin right now. Hey, hi, morning. It's um, Monday, 6 September. Let's start off with uh, Suhaimi. Uh, so, I mean, so I think uh, on uh, National Day, the Ministry of Finance issued a pre-budget statement. Is it unusual to issue a pre-budget statement? And what are the main highlights? And will there be any surprises in this budget? Hi, um, good morning, everyone. Yeah, Ministry of Finance, actually for the first time, issued a pre-budget uh, statement. Uh, basically, it provides update to budget 2021, as well as a very preliminary overview of budget 2022. Quite a fair bit on updates on budget 2021. I think first and foremost, um, Ministry of Finance reaffirmed the revised forecast for 2021 uh, budget deficit to GDP ratio of 6.5% to 7%. Uh, This is against the original target of 5.4%. Not surprising given that official uh, 2021 real GDP growth forecast was cut to 3 to 4% from 6 to 7.5% previously. And also the government announced four additional economic stimulus packages on top of budget 2021 allocation. Um, second thing is uh, MOF seems to be sticking to its original budget 2021 revenue target of 100, uh, a tax revenue target of 162 billion ringgit despite lower growth forecast and despite 3 billion revenue foregone reflecting tax incentive, rebates, and exemptions um, under the economic stimulus package. Um, tax revenue in the first seven months of this year is $92 billion. That's about 57% of the budget 2021 projection. So on track on calendarized basis. Plus, there is an upside to revenues from uh, commodity-related income, essentially uh, oil-related income. And this is confirmed by Petronas giving the government additional $7 billion ringgit in dividend to the government on top of the 18 billion ringgit committed under budget 2021 to reflect higher average uh, crude oil price at the moment. Um, to ensure budget deficit to GDP ratio meet the revised target, uh, the government also actually revised or cut uh, spending allocation lower to 315 billion ringgit versus the original 322.5 billion ringgit. Uh, this reflect uh, prioritization of spending on health sectors and uh, economic stimulus packages and cutting non-critical expenditure. So because of this, 
operating expenditure and development expenditure allocation this year are cut to 288 billion ringgit from 305.5 billion ringgit originally but covid-19 uh, spending raised to 27 billion ringgit from 17 billion ringgit on federal government debt as the end of june 2021 the statutory debt uh, is at 57% of GDP, still below the limit of 60%, but it is expected to reach that by the end of this year. So um, MOF has indicated that the statutory debt limit will have to be raised, and uh, we have estimated or expected uh, raising of the limit to 65% of GDP, which was confirmed by the news towards later part of last week. Um, as far as budget 2022 is concerned, uh, it will focus on what we call three R's, recovery, resilience, and reform. So it should remain relatively expansionary. We are looking at a budget deficit of 6% of GDP for next year. Um, to support recovery process, uh, budget will focus on measures to help uh, vulnerable disadvantaged groups, uh, micro-enterprises, and SME, as well as uh, generating jobs opportunities. To be resilient, the focus would be on um, spending on uh, public health as well as uh, improving the structure of the economy in the post-pandemic world, including uh, more allocation and investment in digital and technology infrastructure and capex, as well as uh, boosting the economy productivity, uh, high-skill labor and automation. Um, from, I think, maybe the key point to take out of this pre-budget statement from our perspective is that uh, on the revenue basis, uh, reintroduction of good GST, introduction of new taxes like the speculated capital gains tax or carbon tax are unlikely in budget 2022. Um, in addition, we don't see risk of windfall tax on sectors that benefit from COVID-19 pandemic like glove manufacturers. Uh, although another round of voluntary contribution to the industry by the industry to COVID-19 fund is possible because in budget 2021, glove industry contributed 400 million ringgit. The reason for saying this is because the pre-budget statement indicates that the strategies to increase revenue will focus on three things. One is manage tax leakages, especially those involved smuggling activities. And because of this, we also think syntax approach a syntax hike approach is unlikely as well. Uh, second, to strengthen tax compliance. Uh, one thing that is highlighted and possible in budget 2022 is another round of tax amnesty through special voluntary disclosure program. But this time it's on indirect taxes because in 2019, the tax amnesty is for income taxes during the period between November 2018 and September 2019, which earned the government around 7 to 8 billion ringgit in extra revenue. And lastly, uh, to boost revenue, also the government would review tax incentives on investment to basically uh, limit some of the uh, revenue losses. Uh, so, I mean, could you update on the COVID situation and the vaccine rollout and whether the government's on track to further relax lockdown restrictions despite the elevated Delta cases? I think, as you mentioned earlier, COVID cases remain around 20,000 a day. But um, there are other statistics suggesting improvement in the sense that, for example, uh, ICU utilization rate for COVID-19 cases at hospital nationwide, as of yesterday, was 86% compared with a peak of 108% back in early June 
But of course, there are big variations between states from 0% to as high as 128%. Uh, but as the end of 2020, uh, as the end of August, um, all states have achieved the month target of having 40% of adult population fully vaccinated. And the government is confident that the target of 80% of population or 100% of adult population to be fully vaccinated can be achieved uh, in October based on current pace of daily vaccination. I think what is more important now is uh, COVID-19 is now officially recognized or considered as endemic. So the government is kind of preparing for living with COVID-19. So for example, uh, what's happening is that we are seeing more reopening of the economy and easing of restrictions. And as of this month, only four states and federal territories, including Selangor and KL, that account for 40% of GDP, are left in the phase one category, which is the phase with uh, strictest containment measures. Uh, but other 11 states and federal territories have moved into phases two, three, and four with relaxations in containment measures. And since 10 of August, there's more flexibilities accorded to uh, the fully vaccinated population in terms of uh, movements and activities. From 16 September, uh, tourist destination, the Langkawi Island, would be reopened under the pilot tourism bubble plan, and uh, school would be reopened on the 3rd October. Thanks, Swami. Let's bring in Desmond. I think, Desmond, the second quarter bank results are all out. So how's the overall performance and what are your key takeaways? And I suppose which banks outperform and surprise most on upside? Thanks, Hakbin. So yes, the overall performance of the banks was rather encouraging in the second quarter itself. We saw that cumulative operating profits for the banks in our coverage actually expanded at a decent pace of 9% year on year. And this was driven by still strong net interest margins and stable costs. Core net profit rose 32% year-on-year, and this was on the back of lower provisions during the quarter itself. So as a consequence, the first half cumulative core net profit jumped 30% year-on-year. This compares against a 22% decline in earnings in 2020 itself. So the banks that surprised positively against consensus were uh, Alliance Bank, M-Bank, CIMB, and RHB. And most notably was M-Bank, which saw its earnings recover from a dismal year last year. If you recall, M-Bank was levied with a global settlement sum of $2.8 billion pertaining to its involvement uh, in 1MDB. And coupled with the write-off of goodwill, it reported a net loss of $3.8 billion in the financial year to March 2021 itself. Since then, it has recovered and reported net profit in the first quarter of FY22 grew 6% uh, during the year itself. And now with the second quarter results all wrapped up, um, which banks are you most positive on going into 2022? And I guess which one are your top bank picks? Yeah, so I think the one thing to highlight first is that the second half of 2021 is going to be a weak period uh, for results, but this has been well flagged. The banks are actually expecting interest margins to soften amidst uh, stiffer fixed deposit competition, as well as lower CASA growth, while credit costs will rise as banks continue to set aside preemptive provisions against potential defaults from the present loan moratorium itself. However, we do think that we've built in sufficient buffers into our earnings forecast. And as a whole, we're looking at cumulative net profit for our banks to expand 25% this year and into 2022, we're looking at 
net profit growth of 14%, which is still fairly decent. And this is predominantly on the back of lower credit costs. ROE is expected to expand to 9.9% next year from 9.1% this year. So the topics in um, in our sector, which we have just upgraded to positive today, would be MBank, Public Bank, BIMB, RHBA, and Hong Leung Financial Group. Actually, just quickly, uh, because of the loan bar term, could you just um, give a brief um, sense of your views on the modification loss as well as the dividends uh, going forward? Um, so in terms of the modification loss itself, the guidance <clears throat> across the banks is that because now they can actually charge interest on the deferred payments, so the modification loss will be a lot smaller than what they were in terms of quantum last year. The banks are still working through the mod loss itself and um, they haven't come up with concrete numbers per se. But even if we were to assume that the mod loss was of similar quantum to what it was last year, we still think that the impact to earnings will be pretty manageable for the banks as a whole. So on the dividend side, the banks have started paying out uh, first half dividends, which is actually very encouraging, considering the fact that they didn't do so last year. And so we're pretty optimistic that they should be able to continue this dividend payment uh, towards the end of the year itself. The only issue is that we're not sure how the mod loss actually factors into the dividend payout computation. But certainly, I think uh, we can expect it to be a better year than last year in terms of dividend payments as a whole. Great. Thanks, Desmond. Uh, let's bring in Kaushal. So, Kasha, I think um, OPEC um, had a meeting last week. Can you share your thoughts on uh, the OPEC Plus decision to maintain the 400,000 barrels per day output hike? Was this um, decision widely expected? Hi, good morning, Hugbin. So, OPEC has decided to stick to its plan, easing output by 400,000 barrels per day for October. Uh, the long-term plan is for them to continue to ease by 400,000 barrels every month all the way up to September 2022. So erasing the output cuts that they'd set in 2020. Uh, the recent decision is within market expectations. Right? There was some uncertainty because you know, global COVID cases have been on the rise, but OPEC's decision signals that there are still positive on the crude market fundamentals, and they expect to see near-term tightness to persist. So based on OPEC's demand estimates, world crude demand in third quarter will rise by roughly 2.7 million barrels per day, quarter-on-quarter, quarter, uh, driven by China, India, and Europe. I think the fundamentals actually may be better than what the street is expecting. Uh, crude market will remain in a deficit for the rest of the year, and this gives us confidence that crude prices will remain elevated, at least in the near term. But for 2022, uh, the expectation is market will flip to a surplus as OPEC uh, continues to hike output, and U.S. production is expected to increase by 800,000 barrels per day. Uh, market expects a surplus of around 2.5 million barrels per day in 2022. So I expect the crude prices will come back to the 60 to $65 level. So the images I saw from Hurricane Ida was pretty uh, horrific. Um, any impact and damage on the petrochemical and refining facilities? So the, the hurricane season is seasonal. You know, So shut-ins and disruptions of the energy sector in the U.S. is expected. Uh, normally, this leads to some supply chain tightness. Uh, you know, this can be exaggerated depending on the inventory levels. But following uh, the Hurricane Ida, roughly around 2.4 million barrels per day of refining capacity was shut. 90% of the oil and 80% of gas wells were shut in as safety precautions. Power has been disrupted. 
I would imagine most operations will be back online in one to two weeks. If the power disruption lasts longer than expected, you know, like what we saw in Hurricane Laura and the polar vortex in the first quarter, uh, we could see significant movement in prices. So let me just share two things I'm monitoring very closely. The first one is upside risk on gasoline spreads. Since the U.S. is the largest go- consumer of gasoline and the current inventory levels are very low. The second one is force majeures of chemical companies. So U.S. is a significant exporter to Asia. During Hurricane Laura, we saw many force majeures, which led to a sharp rise in Asian chemical prices. As of now, the force majeure have been limited, but depending on the duration of the dis- disruption, these could rise. I think in your report, you cited an interesting report from Bloomberg on a survey on business travel post-pandemic. So what are the findings and implications for jet fuel demand? So it is really interesting to see some of the data for the surveys. Uh, I'm of the opinion that many industries will see a structural change due to the pandemic. So one of the obvious ones is business travel, uh, given the advent of Zoom calls. So according to the survey, roughly 84% of the major global companies surveyed, uh, they will be cutting back on flying post-pandemic and expected to slash travel budgets by 20 to 40%. So what does this mean for jet fuel demand? So total jet fuel demand is 8 million barrels per day uh, globally, or roughly 8% of total global crude demand. So of the total air travel, business travel accounts for roughly 15% or so globally. And so if you take an extreme case, if all business travel was over, this would impact roughly about 1 million barrels per day of crude demand. Uh, and if you were to take maybe you know a more moderate, a 20 to 40% reduction in business travel, this would be close to around 300,000 barrels per day. So the impact is still small for now, but in my view, the impact to refiners will be greater. Uh, the key reason is because refiners have a fixed configuration in terms of what products they can produce and at what ratios. So if jet fuel demand is reduced, they can try to divert production to some other products, but in a very limited manner. And so, I mean, this I think that is going to be the big constraint for refiners. So that is something that we will have to watch out for in the future. Great. Thanks, Kasha. Let's bring in Sakti Andi. So, Andi, uh, China's growth is slowing and there are signs that the PBOC may be moving to an easing bias. Uh, do you think we should start worrying about the risk of a sharper China slowdown and a big depreciation move in the RMB? Yeah, uh, morning. I mean, uh, I don't think we, we, in our view, I don't think we need to be worried, too worried, because we think that there's still some room for government-driven investment uh, to bolster domestic demand uh, should uh, private consumption deteriorate sharply. Uh, and also, if you look at the how China has dealt with the current Delta outbreak, they've, they've dealt with it quite sharply. And I think there's possibility that China could be more open to an endemic future uh, with COVID-19 should the their local vaccines uh, come out well. But just want to add on that monetary and fiscal policy is important to need to counterbalance the drags from this sec- sector-level regulations. We, we are concerned about sector-level regulations and this uh, co- common prosperity focus that China has been um, coming up with with the after-school tutoring issues. Uh, so uh, easing is slightly to be measured in our view. Um, so uh, yes, data in August is weak. September activity should rebound in our view. I think restrictions... Um, uh, should ease with the recent Delta variant outbreak uh, behind us. And then Q4, we expect it to be improving as well out of China with macro policy support. So overall, uh, we think the latest uh, policy move probably from, from, um, from China would be a triple R potentially cut, introduced or announced in October ahead of another surge of the MILF uh, coming to maturity in November and December. So uh, our view is it's not going to be the same as previously when there are triple R cuts, it'll be more measured 
so Romimbi, in our view, is actually going to be uh, unlikely to see dramatic uh, deterioration or devaluation in the short term or even in the medium term. So Andy, in your ASEANX study, I suppose if the Romimbi does make a big move, which Asian and ASEAN currencies are the most sensitive to such a move? Yeah, so that very important question in my view, as we talk about other things uh, in globally and macro perspective, um, the Shiromimbi, if it devalues sharply, uh, we did an analysis using models over the past three to five years, and we found that uh, the rupiah actually you know, it gets impacted quite distinctively now relative to what it was from 2015 to 2020, very stuck. Um, one of the main reasons is probably because of the um, sort of similar directional flows that Indonesian uh, uh, debt or bond markets is actually uh, faces as well. So that's one that's followed by, uh, to some extent, Thai baht, uh, and then followed by ringgit, and then uh, Sing dollar, and uh, in terms of uh, the rest, peso as well. So IDR, Sing dollar, Thai baht uh, are probably one of the key currencies that might be impacted significantly, particular IDR. Okay, thanks, Andy. Uh, Jackie, very useful and comprehensive Philippine ESG compendium. Can you highlight the key takeaways and main themes in the report? Hi, good morning. Um, so from a regulatory standpoint, sustainability reporting appears to be very new in the Philippines. Um, the Philippine Stock Exchange has no regulation on it, and the local SEC has only released its reporting guidelines in 2019. So although the SEC sanction template is actually pretty comprehensive, um, its implementation will still be on a trial run until 2022. But this loose regulatory environment is not representative of ESG in the Philippines at all, as most large corporates have been pursuing it for years. So taking guidance from globally recognized frameworks, the Ayala, Aboitis, GP Capital, SM, and JG Summit groups have actually crafted their own sustainability goals, which are measurable and far exceed the minimum regulatory and reporting requirements, um, already earning them a spot actually in international sustainability indexes. So our report focused um, on the sustainability risk dynamics of the country's most relevant sectors and correlated these with stock performances. Um, for now, we find that the correlation of ESG rankings to stock performance is not yet very pronounced, um, but this could be a function of the degree of information asymmetry for the current reporting practice. Um, we also identified the top and the worst ESG corporates um, per sector. So at this stage in the Philippines' ESG journey, uh, we do value initiative over exposure. Um, the centuries-old uh, Filipino-Spanish groups are definitely trailblazers in this space, uh, which is why we like um, Ayala Corp, Ayala Land, and Aboidis Power. So other groups which have shown strong in, um, initiative momentum as well include um, ICTSI, PLDT, BDO, and Universal Ravina Corporation. 